Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. In this episode, we'll be doing part two of our coverage of Sandman special number one, The Song of Orpheus. Pencils on this one from Brian Talbot. Mark Buckingham provided the inks. Daniel Vazo gave us the colors. Todd Klein gave us the letters. Shelley Roberg was the assistant editor. Karen Berger was the editor. And of course, written by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, as you said, Brent, this is part two. Last time we did the prologue and chapters one and two. So this time we are finishing it up. We're doing chapters three and four and then the epilogue. So let's just get right into it. Chapter three is going to give us the famous story of Orpheus's descent into the underworld to rescue Eurydice. But it starts literally where chapter two left off, which is to say that it actually starts with Orpheus still in Thrace, and he needs to get to Tynarum, which is really the southernmost part of mainland Hellas or, or Greece. This is an overland journey of about 250 miles, and overland is how Orpheus goes. And Gaiman writes this, There were no songs sung, nor tales told, of Orpheus's journey to Tynarum, or if there were, they are lost to us today. And that is true. Virgil, Ovid, for example, both just skip over this journey because what we're here for is the underworld, right? And Gaiman does not give us an entire epic about this, but he does narrate this journey. Gaiman has Orpheus encounter some witches in Thessaly. He has Orpheus speak with the Pythia in Delphi. Uh, That's a, a type of oracle. And then he writes this, he escaped the darkness that waited for him in the heart of Corinth. And all of that is happening before Orpheus finally gets to Tynarum. But even while the text is telling us all of this, the images are all of Tynarum, and so we don't get much narrated detail about these adventures, and we get no graphic detail at all. I think this is really wonderful storytelling, in that it makes the world bigger than the story that Gaiman is telling, right? This is something Tolkien, for example, is just an absolute master of. But it also has me, Brent, really, really wanting more. And I think for me, if I could pick one of these episodes to get narrated narrated in full, which I would really love to have, I would probably like to know what the darkness was in Corinth. I think that's a fantastic tease for a Neil Gaiman story here. Uh, I wonder about you, Brent, though. Did any of these teases here capture your imagination? Glenn, I was struck in the same way that you were, both by the wonderful, expeditious way that he lays all this out and also once leaves you wanting more and particularly that I want to know more about the 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 darkness um in Corinth that's the story I want to know more about um and I even want to know more about it once I read Leslie Klinger Sandman annotations and I was able to get the following snippet from it The darkness that waited for him in the heart of Corinth may be a reference to the witch Medea, who murdered her lover, Orpheus's friend Jason of the Argonauts, out of jealousy. However, in private correspondence, Neil Gaiman indicates that that this refers to the Corinthian, quote, the grandest nightmare of dream. That's all that Leslie Klinger gives us there, but oh my god, Orpheus has to escape the Corinthian who is trying to do whatever the Corinthian is trying to do in this time period so that he can continue on his journey is uh, not just a single issue. There's multiple issues of comics I want to see just of that. Maybe 
uh, the ongoing Corinthian stories we're getting from comics right now of Dream uh, Nightmare Country. Maybe there'll be a flashback to the past and Neil Gaiman will come in and write it himself and we'll find out what exactly happened with Orpheus and the Corinthian because I want to see those two in panel together and figure out what's going on. I, I was teased with what I wanted to know before and I hadn't even thought necessarily about the Corinthian. I assumed it was just something near the place that is Corinth, but nope. Um, more exciting than I could have imagined. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I can't believe that no one has already done this, right? That we have gotten no spinoff series about this. And uh, yeah, I share your enthusiasm or, or your hope, I guess, really, that uh, that we will, in fact, be able to get that. That would just be awesome. And also, uh, Medea could appear in that story, right? In fact, that would be mm. a really great way to bring in Orpheus's previous uh, adventure as an Argonaut right back into this story. I mean, you could really expand this, right, by giving him some interactions with Jason, maybe have him even be present there at the the murder somehow. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Now I'm kind of making it a bit of, of Hamlet or something, I guess, too. But yeah, this is amazing. I definitely want this. I think every issue we do, I add something to the list of things I want to beg Neil Gaiman to go right. And uh but but this might this might be near the top of it. Now I love, love, love this idea. A great page of travel Lots of interest, keeping up the pressure, both visually as well as the snippets of text we do get. And then we get to the ominous entry to the underworld and suddenly a page without any words and just let the art speak for itself for this entry point. Yeah, let's uh, let's go do that. Let's get to the underworld here. We see the gaseous fissure in the earth that leads literally to a world under ours. And then we get, yeah, this entire two-page spread of Orpheus following the path down to the River Styx. All of this, as you said, Brent, without any text at all, it is an absolutely gorgeous spread. And it concludes with Orpheus watching Karen, the, the ferryman of the dead, pulling up to where Orpheus waits for him next to the river. Orpheus, as we know, is not dead. And so Karen is not willing to take Orpheus the rest of the way to Hades. But Orpheus has something that Karen wants. It is the Golden Bough. This is straight out of Virgil. Specifically, it is straight out of Book 6 of the Aeneid, where Aeneas visits the underworld. In the Aeneid, Aeneas just shows the Golden Bough to Charon because it's really a present for Persephone, who is the queen of the underworld. Uh, the Golden Bough is something that she really, really loves to have. Uh, also, really, I should say that it's not Aeneas who does this. It's actually the Sibyl who is, in fact, guiding Aeneas. Uh, the Sibyl is another oracle, this one in Italy. But here, Gaiman has the Golden Bough be a gift from the Pythia at Delphi. So uh, I think here he's being very clever in including all of these elements while still also mixing them up. Now, Karen begins to take Orpheus the rest of the way. Again, this all looks gorgeous. But then he asks Orpheus to play his lyre for him. And he says that it has been a long time since he's heard music. And then when he hears Orpheus play, he weeps. Now, there is going to be more weeping coming up, but what struck me here is the way in which Gaiman is depicting Karen. Karen here, the way Gaiman is doing this, almost seems to be a mortal who has died and then been given this job, which is unlike any depiction in classical literature. It is also unlike what Dante does. And of course, we have seen Gaiman use a lot of Dante for hell. Dante famously gives Karen these flaming eyes or eyes of fire. But this Karen just looks like an old man. He looks rather 
beaten down. It's a subtle move, but I think it very nicely sets the stage for what is to come. And this was something that I think just really had me feeling in awe of of Gaiman's creative vision here. Yeah, I really like the way Karen is depicted here, um, partially because of the environments. I'm imagining that we've got Sir Ian McKellen. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, but instead of uh, having to worry about escorting, escorting hobbits uh, through the underworld here, he has been left alone to himself um, and he has the job of ferrying things, but he has, it's been so long since he's seen anything. And you had mentioned in part one of this, Glenn, that um, the conception of the underworld um, in Grecian myth is focused a lot on the fact that those who are in it don't have a memory of the former selves to depict Charon here as maybe a former mortal who still does have his memory, despite the fact that he is on the river that would take away memories, um, just makes him that much more of a tragic figure. And the fact that Orpheus then plays the song and it causes Charon to cry, um, lets you think about the power of Orpheus, but also just generally the power of songs to sometimes transport you back to things in your memory. And, you know, he, Orpheus says, you know, should I, have I offended you? Should I stop? And he says, don't stop. And it's just a matter of like, sometimes we want to dwell in memories, even if they make us feel strong emotions, even if slightly to the ill, there's a power in that memory um, that is denied so many in the underworld that we're about to encounter. Um, and Charon kind of being by himself and dealing with people who are in the process of generally losing their memory or otherwise, unless, except for these many times where people just show up with things and suddenly need rides and no one's done this before, <laughs> except for, you know, that long line over there. Um, but still, uh, eternity is a very long time. And so, uh, yeah, and I really like it, and um, I'm really looking forward to if there's ever an on-screen depiction of this, who they decide to cast in this role, because it seems like a blockbuster role to have, you know, a, a wonderful actor come in for just like half a day of shooting. <laughs> right. I mean, I think Ian McKellen uh, kind of reprising Gandalf in some sense here actually would be a brilliant way to go, though, of course, there are lots and lots of choices. I will, you know, in fairness, uh, say here, uh, just to emphasize something we we brought up last episode in the first part of this issue is that, you know, if we can believe death, that Heracles made up the story of his journey to the underworld. Orpheus now is the first person to do this, right? So this is still before Odysseus and before Aeneas, and right, and so they're actually learning from the story of Orpheus, <laughs> right? How to actually go about uh, successfully gaining entrance to the underworld and getting whatever it is that you're you're there to get. Usually, of course, it's to speak to someone who is there. I want to also emphasize something that you got at here a little bit, Brent, which is the nature of of memory and its relationship to emotion but also its relationship to to music here right i think we could actually believe that karen maybe if he was a, a mortal he may have still lost his sense of of self right his his sense of personal or individual identity 
but retain a knowledge of what a musical instrument is. And then the hearing of the music might actually bring back some of his memories to him. I think that probably all of us have had, well, some kind of sense, memory, taste, or smell. But also for me, at least, and I think for many people, music is a really big uh, stirrer of memory or big catalyst for memories, right? Hearing a a special piece of music that can take you back to um, some significant time when that music meant something to you, or maybe not even a specific time, but just, ah, uh, oh, yeah, I remember that summer. I remember that road trip, or I remember that person who was in my life, something like that. Gaiman, of course, huge fan of, of music. I think that this is probably something that is very powerful for him and his sense of the, the world. And I think that, that that appears here on the page in a way that really was meaningful to me as well. Yeah, and there's been so much wonderful music about journeys to the underworld that we have, and we don't need to dwell on them here you know, we can talk a little bit about Orpheus specific ones, but there's been a lot of wonderful music that uh, it really lets you go into the lower end of the, the you know, your bass spectrum sometimes for um, the, the music you're able to pull on to have that journey and, and to kind of bestow that weight that the traveler is likely feeling and make the audience uh, sympathize with. Well, let's leave Orpheus here on this uh, boat for a moment before we get to the climax of this part of the story so that we can take a pause here and let our listeners know about something else that we are really excited about that we have been doing on Patreon. Yeah, uh, for our patrons, we'll be doing a special episode on The Walking Tour of the Shambles. It's co-written by Neil Gaiman and Gene Wolfe, which means a three-host episode. Uh, Brandon will be joining us, or I'll be joining Brandon. Um, and Glenn, I guess, will be there either way, because uh, that's the way this plays out on this network. Um, but we're looking forward to it. It should be a wonderful exploration of... Um, it should be a wonderful exploration of the best city of the world, Chicago, uh, or is it, uh, anyways, please join us over on Patreon for that. Um, some wonderful Neil Gaiman, some wonderful Gene Wolfe and some wonderful Chicago. You should show up for any one of those three things. Yeah, this is in fact part of a series that we're going to do on Chicago in speculative fiction. This episode, I should say, is out now or, well, it might not be. If it's not, it will be in a few days. At any rate, I've kind of lost track of when this episode is actually coming out. But uh, next month, Brandon and I are covering the very first Dresden Files novel, which also takes place in Chicago. Later in this series, Brandt, you and I are going to be talking a little Vampire the Masquerade, very, very contemporary to the Sandman, something I'm very excited about. And uh, we hope you'll be excited about that as well and want to check out this series on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. And of course, we want to say a huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for keeping the network going. But all right, let's get back to the underworld here. So the boat ride is over. Orpheus now has to deal with Cerberus, this giant multi-headed dog who also guards the underworld. As in just about every version of this story, Orpheus uses his music to lull Cerberus to sleep, but we actually don't get any text for this. Also, we don't see Cerberus, at least not directly. What we see is the shadow of Cerberus against a cave wall, and this part of the narrative takes up most of a page. I think this is genius storytelling here to really just not show us the like one of the most famous beats of this to do it kind of obliquely. I really loved that. And so, yeah, now Orpheus is properly in the underworld. We see a throng of mindless shades just kind of milling about. And then in the distance, we see the silhouette of the gigantic thrones of Hades and Persephone. Orpheus makes his way there. He greets them. 
And then he sings a song about the death of Eurydice and about his grief over that death. And the song moves everyone. Ixion's wheel stands still with wonder. The vultures cease to gnaw Titius's liver. And Tantalus makes no effort to satisfy his hunger or his thirst. And even the three furies begin to weep. Now, these details are not original to Gaiman, but he does something here to make it his own, something that we have already had teased a little bit and something that we have teased ourselves as well. Persephone says, Thou hast made the Furies cry, Orpheus. They will never forgive you for that. And Hades is irritated at Orpheus's disruption of his perfectly ordered world, and so he makes a deal with Orpheus. Orpheus can take Eurydice back to the world of the living, where she will then just live out her normal lifespan before returning here, of course. But Orpheus has to lead the way, and he cannot stop, cannot speak, and he certainly cannot look back until they are in the world of the living. And so Orpheus simply has to walk back up out of the underworld, trusting that he has accomplished his mission. But of course, well, as we all know is going to happen, he can't do it. He makes it most of the way. But then when the light at the end of the tunnel I mean, literally, the light at the end of the tunnel becomes visible. He just can't help it. He looks back. He sees that Eurydice is indeed there. But now, of course, she is being sucked back into the underworld. And Orpheus collapses to his knees here, and he's feeling grief and anger. And look, this is a classic tale. I think most people have come to this issue already familiar with some version of this. But it is so beautifully told here by Gaiman. It's gorgeously illustrated by Talbot, Buckingham, and Vazo. I love this version of this story just so, so much. Yeah, it's a great uh, retelling of the story. As you mentioned, there's a couple little uh, bits that Neil Gaiman puts in there that are uh, new or unique um, and maybe significant in a number of ways, um, which we can get into. But uh, yeah, it's it's visually stunning. Um, I do want to mention here, um, as we're introduced to Persephone, uh, in The Hanging Out with the Dream King, which is a collection of interviews by Joseph McCabe, no relationship between that book and this podcast of any way. In discussions with Brian Talbot, he mentioned uh, his inspiration for Persephone. He said, uh, we, he and Neil Gaiman, discussed Persephone quite a bit as we knew a strikingly beautiful woman named Persephone who would have been ideal as a basis for the character. As it turned out, I couldn't get hold of her to obtain her permission, so I based her on the pre-Raphael model Jane Morris instead. I like that little detail in terms of a look behind the curtain of um, Brian Talbot's process of you know thinking if there is a specific model that would work well, and then also the fact that he has the respect for the fact he can't get a hold of them to obtain a release, um, not you know kind of cheating and uh, proceeding otherwise and but instead going with another inspiration, something that uh, would not have any copyright concerns (laughs) or any ethical dilemmas about depicting an actual person, um, but instead using um, Jane Morris, um, who we've seen in other art over time. So I really like that depiction um, as part of all of the wonderful depictions we get of the underworld, as you mentioned, kind of this throng of, um, of, not faceless, very faced, but yet kind of made to feel translucent and um, anonymous people in which it you, you really feel in this depiction kind of how awful this must be for them. But also it's not – this isn't 
the hell that we've seen depicted when we go to hell versus the underworld, right? Where we see people being tortured. This is just this throng of kind of apparitions who all seem longing and lost um, with their mouths mainly hanging open. Um, and it's just, it's, it's terrifying in a unique way versus other depictions that we've seen in the Sandman, um, which again, lots of horror still laced in this originally horror comic. Right. Yeah. The depictions of hell, as, as we've seen, we've gotten a lot of hell, right, in this in this book in Sandman, is kind of a, a type of wasteland, right? But here, the underworld is just depicted as literally an underworld. It's a system, a network of, of caves with lots of cool features to those caves, but it's a network of, of caves. So for being realms that are in some sense, kind of the same thing, right? They're the land of the dead. They look and feel so, so different. And yeah, the the, the visual team here, the visual arts team does such an amazing job of, of making that distinction, right? You wouldn't even necessarily think that there's any kind of thematic relationship between the two things just by looking at the landscape of them, but yet both also still feel very much like like real places. It's absolutely brilliant. Of course, one of the elements, right, that hell has that this underworld does not is demons. And that, I think, actually lends a lot to the character of hell is the presence of the demons, of making it this uh, kind of weird, uh, twisted, demonic wasteland, as opposed to Hades here, the underworld, looking really kind of just like a vast system of tombs, I suppose. So one thing I want to mention that I got from Leslie Klinger's annotated Sandman was um, Neil Gaiman commenting in the script how he decided to write the actual lyrics for Orpheus' song that he sings here in the underworld. Um, Neil Gaiman says, quote, for the song of Orpheus, what I've done is to take the speech that Ovid has Orpheus make, put it into my own words, then put them into iambic pentameter. It seemed the most sensible way to do it. In blank verse, I tried to write it with rhymes, but it seemed forced and unnatural. The way I've constructed it, it's a loose, a very loose ballad, three verses and an envoy. Yeah, this is something that I think is begging to be performed and recorded in some way. I, I don't know of any any attempt to do that, like ever to set this to music by, you know, band that might just be a fan of Neil Gaiman or, I don't know, Tori Amos, for example. I don't know of anyone who has done that, uh, but somebody should do that. I'm torn on that, Glenn, because on the one hand, I would love to hear it. On the other hand, because of the limitations of the medium, similar to when Orpheus sings his song when we've encountered him before in um, during the French Revolution, I, I like that my imagination gets to go wild with it. It's kind of like, you know, not seeing the monster in the monster film. You know, the Lovecraftian horror is something that I can't fully grasp. And therefore, like the music couldn't will always be better in my head than maybe it would be rendered in actuality. Um, I can just think of this as perhaps the greatest song from Liar ever um, and leave it at that. Um, anyways, I kind of I like that idea. Well, I, for one, would like to uh, see this uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know, read rather than sung, perhaps over a string quartet playing. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about that at the, uh, at the end of the episode. <laughs> Uh, Leslie Klinger also, in talking about um, the response that the Furies have to Orpheus's song, uh, notes that, you know, the panel here uh, depicts the Eumenides or Furies weeping in Orpheus's song. Ovid writes, quote, 
at least from the Brooks Moore translation he's working for from 1922, uh, quote, then fame declared that conquered by the song of Orpheus for the first and only time, the hard cheeks of the fierce humanities were wet with tears, unquote. And so here, I, I like the fact that we've got the reference to he made the, the furious cry. It's noted, as you pointed out, that Persephone points out that there could be a problem that could come from that. Um, but it's also noted that this is the only time. It's not just the only time so far. It's that perhaps this is the only time ever uh, that will be and has been that the Furies are uh, made to weep. And that is not something you want to put on those three ladies. You do not want them to experience things they are not prepared for. They like to show up and give you cryptic things that you should worry about, but don't cross them. Yes, and we had an invocation of the Furies in Three Septembers and a January as well, right? The story pre immediately preceding this one where they're referred to as the kindly ones. And I think in that episode, I described the Furies as uh, vengeance deities, right? Uh, bringers of, of vengeful uh, death, right? That's what they do. These are people who are supernatural beings who kill. Like that's their that's their purpose here and do it without remorse, right? They are a, a function of the good ordering of the universe. And so to make them feel grief, sadness, remorse at the death of a mortal, that is, uh, that is not the right order of things. And uh, yeah, this line here from Persephone is utterly ominous. And I think just connecting the dots a little bit here saying, yes, we've had desire invoke these beings as a kind of threat, to dream here and now they show up in the next issue in this way yeah uh you know we, we're not going to spoil anything here but yeah this is something that we should be taking note of and i'm excited for it all right chapter four the last chapter that we do still have an epilogue that we'll we'll have to deal with here so we see orpheus older now he's got gray in his hair He's sitting on a rock. He's playing music for some assembled animals. This includes a unicorn. I think that's pretty awesome. But this scene is really about a visit from his mother, from Calliope. Now, at this point, Calliope and Dream are no longer married. They've divorced, I guess. I don't know if that's really the verb that they would use, but they are no longer together romantically. Of course, we knew that that was going to happen, and now we also know why. And it is that Calliope thinks Dream should have helped Orpheus get Eurydice back, and when she found out that he had refused, she left him. And I wonder, Rand, you know, if we read backwards, right? If we have this knowledge now, if we take this and, and read these scenes again in Calliope, the scenes between Dream and Calliope, I mean, does this knowledge affect maybe the way that you read those scenes, do you think? I think it gives us the context for what was said there, because there's briefly a reference to the fact that, you know, they have a child and that perhaps there was something to do with the child that caused the friction. But I think this fleshes out specifically what it was, is, you know, the son grieving his new wife came and asked the father for help. And the response of the father, as we've talked about last episode, uh, bad father, bad, bad parenting. Um, and so – you know, Calliope deciding perhaps as the straw that broke the camel's back there that uh, we're done. I don't want to continue to be with you in part because uh, I would imagine seeing the mistreatment of your child is something that most parents will be a breaking point for their interaction with 
the other parent of that child of just like, I don't know you if why were I would do everything I could. Why would you not do so? And even if dream didn't do anything more, certainly the approach he took was uh, awful. Uh, even if he took no action, he certainly could have not been so awful in what he said to his son. Yeah, agreed. And I I think that, you know, in the past, I have read those scenes between Calliope and Dream in Calliope with a sense of sadness, right? That their relationship ended, even if, uh, well, certainly I would never want to be in a relationship with Dream. That guy's guy's a jerk. And I also can't imagine he's all that fun to actually hang out with either, right? So not someone I want to be in a relationship with, but uh, nonetheless, I felt a kind of sadness, right? That they're hanging over the memory of their relationship. And that might still be there. But knowing that Calliope, at least in the last instance, right, as the straw that broke the camel's back, left Dream because she disagreed with his parenting choices, that makes me revisit those scenes in Calliope, maybe feeling more like anger <laughs> is hanging over that than than sadness. Uh, I haven't actually gone back and reread those scenes in light of this, but uh, I think that would be a fun a fun experiment. Yeah, no, I think it would be. Um, so the next time we reread Sandman, which I assume that's what we're going to do after 75, right? We're just going <laughs> to start again from the top. Start over. Um, then this is what we can do is we'll, we'll do the, the spoiler version of Sandman, where we'll talk about everything in context of everything that uh, will come slash has came, but we didn't know about at the time chronologically. It'll maybe be more confusing. So uh, everyone look forward to that. I actually think it's a great idea, right? And we, we this is something you and I read together in our youth, our, our adolescence, and uh, now in our middle age, we are doing this project. Uh, so yeah, I think when we're when we're technically old people, <laughs> that's uh, that's when we'll need to revisit this, right? All three stages of life will have revisited this story and uh, seen what we've taken out of it. It's actually not a bad idea, but I but no problem, no promises here. <laughs> All right. Well, what Calliope is really here for, though, is actually to get Orpheus to. Stop hanging out with animals. She wants him to come back to civilization, back to the world of people. And she tells him that it would do him some good. I don't know, Brand, if, if, if Klinger or Bender have anything on this, but this conversation reminded me of something that Achilles' mother says to him in book 24 of the Iliad. I actually want to read a little bit of this. This is the Stanley Lombardo translation. And Achilles' mother, her name is Thetis, she says, My son, how long will you let this grief eat at your heart? Mindless of food and rest, it would be good to make love to a woman. Now, I don't know if Gaiman had this passage in mind, but it is more or less what Calliope is telling her son here, right? Calliope also, though, has a a more pressing purpose, which is that if Orpheus doesn't get out of here, he is going to become a victim of the Minads and... Well, Achilles is also about to die when Thetis is making basically the same exact speech to him. And so the parallel seems really clear to me. In each case, the son refuses his mother's advice. In each case, they they die. Uh, in this case, the Minads come. Uh, we should say as well who the Minads are. The Minads are frenzied women worshippers of Dionysus. And they do come. They tear Orpheus's body apart. They eat it. Uh, it's an incredibly graphic two pages, I will say. But of course, Orpheus doesn't actually die in this version of the story because he cannot die. And so now we see his head floating in the water. He's calling for Eurydice. He's crying and his face is covered with blood. It is not exactly like the panels that this issue opened with, but it is very close, which is, I think, a nice bit of structuring. And while Klinger doesn't comment on 
the discussion that Calliope has with her son, he does provide a great bit from the script from Neil Gaiman regarding his description of the worshippers of Dionysus. Um, and there's some interesting other things that, uh, that Klinger gets into as well. So let, let me, let me give the readers, uh, or the listeners what Neil has to say, and then I'll add the additional bit that Klinger shares as well here. Neil Gaiman describes them in the script, quote, some are naked, some wear panther skins or leopard skins loosely draped over them, not as clothing, but as a symbol. Some of them hold sticks, the thyrsus, a stick covered with ivy, or sorry, thyrus, a stick covered with ivy. Some carry grapes in bunches, all have ivy wreathed into their hair. A couple have leopard or lion cubs giving suck at their breasts like babies. Some carry phalluses, carved wooden penises. They are possessed by the god. Priestesses of Dionysus, lost in a perpetual ecstasy, a Dionysic, Dionysic frenzy. Their skins are stained with berry juices. Some of them have blood dried on their chins. Some have dried stains of menstrual blood on their inner thighs. The Bacante probably butchering that word. Uh, some of them are eating messily from bunches of grapes. Others are drinking wine. They are all drunk on wine and on the presence of their God. Dionysian worship was four parts worship to six parts possession, unquote. Um, and then Leslie Klinger notes here that in the original comic book, um, they're depicted in a monochromatic bluish gray. The new coloring commission for absolute Sandman and beyond restored the original purple wine stains and the bright lead bright blood uh, described in the script and hanging out with the dream king the interview with brian talbot uh brian talbot actually recollects that the first printing perhaps did have the coloration and then the bluish gray was later done when it once it was collected because uh, people didn't react well to the visceralness of all of the um particularly blood red colors that were going on there so um there's a lot going on in this depiction and also an interesting kind of tale of what's going on with the colorization of this story over time. I read both versions, right? And I imagine that you did as well. This is, uh, you know, we, we, are, we are kind of collectors of these versions. And I will say that I agree with the sentiment that the version that is more graphic, more colored, right? More, more, more vivid in its depiction is also much more disturbing in its depiction. I mean, this, this part of the story graphically in the new colorized versions really, really got to me. The other thing I want to mention here is Leslie Klinger points out um, that when they first show up, what they're chanting, you and you, oi, 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 or however that's supposed to be pronounced, um, that it's an ecstatic, ritualistic, untranslatable um, invocation of Bacchus. Um, and that C.S. Lewis repeated it specifically when Lucy, Susan, and Aslan come upon Bacchus in um, Prince Caspian. In, during in the Narnia Chronicles. Um, and he does mention, though, that the word you, uh, EU, uh, means good or goodness. And so uh, I think it's great here that Neil took this word for word kind of invocation of Bacchus that C.S. Lewis had used and cut and pasted it syllable by syllable into these mouths. <laughs> this is not at all seeming like something that Lucy or Susan uh, would appear in, in conceptions of Narnia. Although now I want to see a retelling of Narnia in which they are at one point, perhaps frenzied Dionysian, Dionysian worship. 
Well, that is utterly fortuitous and serendipitous, Brent, because as you know, but listeners do not, uh, we're going to be covering the Chronicles of Narnia uh, very, very shortly and uh, getting also Neil Gaiman's own Narnia story very, very shortly. But we'll talk about that at the end because we are not quite at the end yet, even though Orpheus has now had his head ripped from his body because we do have an epilogue here. We get three panels showing Orpheus's head lying on a beach. His eyes are closed as a snake approaches. Might be the same snake that bit Eurydice. But then we see a nice 80s goth movement black leather boot step on the snake just as it is about to bite Orpheus. The boot is attached to the foot of Dream, who has come to say goodbye. He has gotten some priests on this island to care for Orpheus, so I guess we know that this island is Naxos. But then Dream tells Orpheus that he will not see him again. And he reminds Orpheus that Orpheus had told Dream that he was no longer his son. And then Dream walks away. But as he's doing that, Orpheus is calling to him, begging him to come back. Dream doesn't come back, of course, but he doesn't even look back. And that is the end of the story. This is a heartbreaking end. I'm having difficulty even just describing it. I can't say that I think very highly of Dream right now, I guess. I I just can't imagine ever walking away from you know, from my own son like this. Uh, this is, uh, it's not a good note for, for dream here. Another bad dad moment. Um, and it got even worse once, um, Leslie Klinger pointed something out in his annotations, which I had not been paying as much attention to. Um, but he points out here that according to Ovid, when the head of Orpheus washed upon the shore of Lesbos, that's just where it is. Um, for that telling uh, a snake made uh, made to bite it but apollo interceded and turned the snake to stone and leslie Klinger says note that dream does not actually kill the snake he steps on it and my brain was just like oh, he killed it but then no a, a, two panels later we do see the snake just going away so we see the father show up talk without much you know remorse or empathy or sympathy to his son um that you know, they're basically through, um, but also that the snake that was trying to bite his son's head and may come back, his son's head can't move, right? So that snake's not going anywhere. It's not that big of an island. Uh, he doesn't kill the snake. He doesn't do anything to deter the snake from future attempts. He merely lets the snake go. Now, some might say, like, there's no reason why Dream wants to punish the snake for doing what a snake would do. Uh, but on the other hand, it also shows how little he may care for his son in this moment, that he'll, he'll save them minorly from the immediate harm, but maybe just because it would interrupt his ability to talk to his son, because it's not like the snake biting him would kill him anyways. He can't die. Yeah, so you're absolutely right here about what is actually going on in the panel, but I did not perceive that the snake was still alive and and moving because there are no lines to indicate movement. But I guess if you're really looking at the perspective, you can see that it is significantly farther away from Orpheus than it was when it was stepped on. So uh, either it is alive and moving away or like Dream kicked it over there or something like that. And obviously the reading that you have presented is is the correct reading here. But yeah, this is also another brilliant place, right? Where Gaiman has clearly been thinking a lot about how a lot of the stories that we know about Apollo are actually stories about Dream. Uh, I don't know that we're going to get much more of this, but this is something I really enjoyed about Augustus and I enjoy the way that he's doing this here in Orpheus uh, as well. Well, that is the end of this 
story, but we still, of course, want to talk about our favorite panels. We want to talk about the title. We have some recommendations for further reading and listening. But let's start by talking about the cover. This is, I guess I would say it's an abstract image of Orpheus looking at Eurydice, who appears to be fading away. So, you know, it seems like it is that moment, right? The famous moment. We only see Orpheus from behind. Uh, He is nude, I'll say. Uh, Eurydice, though, we can see from the front. She is wearing, I guess what I would describe as a black cocktail dress. I mean, she looks very late 80s, early 90s here. Uh, But there is also some text beneath them. Some of it is in Latin. Some of it is in English. Uh, I'll be honest, Brent, it was straining my eyes to make sense of it, so I didn't work very hard at it because uh, you've probably got a note on it. So that was a lazy choice for me, and I'm hoping you can tell me what's going on there. Well, there's a few things going on. What I have from the Dust Covers collection, um, and it's also referenced in a couple other places, first of all, is that, and this doesn't really render in the um, Ronda versions we're reading it in, but at the time, uh, as Neil Gaiman notes in the Dust Covers, glow-in-the-dark covers were the ultimate marketing ploy, and we were asked if we could do a glow-in-the-dark cover, so we did. Unfortunately, someone somewhere forgot to tell anyone about the ultimate marketing ploy or to advertise it anywhere. So to this day, I get shaken people coming up to me, their nerves shot and their fingers a tremble with tales of the night. They saw the face staring up at them from the darkness of their bedroom floor. Of course, we don't have glow in the dark ink and dust covers. So any glowing faces that stare at you from the darkness from here on are your responsibility, not ours. And yeah, it was the case that in the image, there was uh, likely Dream's face. Um, it was my interpretation. Um, two eyes and like a chin of just it would shine out and it, it doesn't at all. It basically overlaid this image. It wasn't a part of the same image. Um, so you would get that in glow in the dark, um, which I think I do have the hard copy of this, just not in my current physical location. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I I think I have this single issue as well. Mine's just in the garage, uh, like an an easily accessible box. So now I'm curious, but uh, it might also be fun to wait until, uh, you know, what I'm going to do with those, of course, is bequeath them to my son when he uh, uh, has come of age uh, for this story. So maybe I'll let him tell me if if there's a glow in the dark face on there or not. There's a just a collection of random words in the dust covers. You can better see some of the words that are underneath the two figures. Um, uh, in Novus, uh, Vite, uh, the word goth, uh, what appears to be a three zero three, but I think it's just something else. Um, uh, Teatre and Riam, like it's just a random collection of a hodgepodge of, of words that Dave McKeon seems to have thrown there that maybe only Dave McKeon would know. But, uh, um, I do like in the dust covers, uh, you do because it gives you a, a larger image of it. Um, you can really appreciate the, um, it's got very vivid colors. You can appreciate the kind of blue clouds and dark sky that are in kind of the holes of whatever tapestry is or whatever is behind the two figures that I think you're right are probably Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, and so perhaps that's, you know, that the underworld that he is trying to get her out of, that might be actually, this is the moment where he is turning around and looking at her. And so she is maybe the waves around her head might be her having to be uh, turned back um, as he is partially more light than she is. He has thought that he is maybe out versus not. I like it. 
Yeah, I like it as well. I think uh, it might not be fair to say so since we will eventually do a wrap-up episode on Fables and Reflections, but I think this has been my favorite cover of these so far. Uh, I have questions about the title as well. I mean, the title is pretty self-explanatory in some sense, uh, except that at the same time, it's not clear what the title is, at least not clear to me, right? Because the cover simply lists the title as Orpheus. That is also how it is listed in the table of contents for Fables and Reflections. But the chapters are all called the Song of Orpheus. And so my question for you, Brent, is which is it? Is this is this story called Orpheus or is it called The Song of Orpheus? I think it's called The Song of Orpheus. Um, in Highbender's Sandman Companion, we have a, a quite a bit from a discussion with Neil Gaiman where he's talking about what his idea had been for this comic versus what it ended up being. So Neil mentions that this issue won a bundles of awards, quote, but the truth is that it's one of the stories with which I'm the least satisfied. My original plan for the Sandman special was to do the equivalent of a series of jazz riffs on all Orphic themes, spinning off the stories precisely like the Einstein intersection uh, by Samuel R. Delaney. Um, the result would have been much weirder and more interesting than what I ended up writing. And he goes on to explain that as he was traveling around, um, particularly the United States, people would come up and say like, well, what do you have coming up next? And he says, I'm doing Orpheus. And people were not thinking about what that was. And so there was a lot of, do you mean Morpheus or who or – and so he realized that um, a lot of the people he was interacting to with um, who were curious about Sandman and wanted to – you know, were Sandman readers who he was interacting with didn't seem as acquainted with the tale of Orpheus. And so he decided, I need to go ahead and just do the straight tale of Orpheus um, instead of doing jazz riffs on stuff. It's harder to appreciate jazz in some ways if you aren't as familiar with kind of more, uh, I'll call it traditional music, but you know, um, it, it's easier to appreciate the notes that aren't being played if you know what you the, should think that the note would sound like probably is the way he's conceptualizing it. So um, that's what's going on there. But I think it is the song of Orpheus uh, because also it's the story of Orpheus. And so in that way, the song of is literally it's, it's, it is about Orpheus, but it's the story of him um, that all everyone is, is here showing up to tell us. Well, this is really fascinating. I had no idea that there had been this other conception for how to do this. I can sympathize with Gaiman feeling disappointed that he didn't get to write the the you know jazz variations, uh, Orphic jazz variations that he wanted to write. But I, for one, am glad that we have this issue just the way it is. I absolutely love this. I love it every time I I revisit it. I I would like Orphic jazz variations, and I, you know, again, maybe we could get him to write that version someday. I mean, presumably he had it outlined in some way, though it may have only been outlined in his head, I suppose. But if there were, you know, he finds that notepad where he was jotting down ideas, even just seeing that is something that would uh, uh, be particularly thrilling to me. So I love that. I love that insight. And I think we uh, definitely need to add to the list, unless you and Brandon have already covered it, the Einstein Intersection by Samuel Delaney should be added to uh, the list of things that either you or I should cover a story from, or Brandon and you should, or all three of us, or or whatever. Seems like a good excuse now to pull in some Delaney if we want to pull some more Delaney into the network. 
Yeah, we definitely should. Yeah, Brandon and I have covered a little bit of Delaney, and I think we've got one more on the list, but it is not uh, not this one. Uh, Delaney, of course, is a, a, a well, I was going to say Philadelphia native. I actually don't know that that's true, but he has resided in Philadelphia as a professor at Temple for a very long time. And of course, um, we have uh, all been to PhilCon, the Philadelphia uh, Speculative Fiction Convention, together as a as a network, as a as a team. And uh, in fact, when we all did that, Brandon was on a panel with Samuel Delaney. So we have been wanting to do more Delaney, right? Just uh, for some some loyalty to the place where uh, uh, Brandon, well, Brandon used to live here and of course where I still live. And uh, yeah, so I think that's a fantastic idea. Let's talk about the art here. Uh, what was your favorite panel? It's tough to choose here because it's a double length issue, but uh, yeah, I mean, what, what was your panel? What was your favorite panel? Yeah, there were a lot of really great runners up. Um, and I'm not going to do my cheating thing because it would take way too long for me to give the list of runners up. So let me just cut to the quick, um, by which I mean the quick and the dead, by which I mean death's apartment. So, uh, death's apartment, uh, particularly the second panel, uh, is my favorite panel where we have the reveal of death's armchair and death's teddy bear. Well loved armchair, well loved teddy bear, and yet still, uh, wonderfully drawn and colored to f- look so inviting. It looks like despite the fact that that chair has been through a lot, it still has all of the nice plumpness it would have to be super soft and super supportive. It also has that wonderful style of lamp that everybody had in the nineties. And some people still have, I think I still have one somewhere around the house. Um, you have the Part of the family photo, unfortunately, we don't have the part with delight in this panel, so I won't cheat, except for I sort of will by mentioning it. Uh, but you also have a cup with a heart on it, which is just great that there's a little like mug with a heart. But also, as I talked about before, with this whole page, I feel like this is bringing you and I and everyone else who are readers into the story, where Orpheus's story doesn't become something at arm's length. This to me is – this whole page is – implicitly breaking the fourth wall. It's giving us the death who is familiar to us. And the only reason why this death exists in my mind is because it is a nod and wink at, Hey reader, this is your death. Um, this is the death that you would encounter, not the death that, you know, shows up at the wedding, not the death that shows up maybe on the next page. It's more akin to the person who looks comfortable in your environment and the things that they find comfortable, the things that you find comfortable in your, you know, early 1990s, you know, Western civilization comfort level things of teddy bear, you know, comfy seat, table heart mug, family photo. And so I I love it. This apartment is amazing. I love this apartment too. I mean, this just looks like the kind of place where I would like to go watch X-Files, right? With someone <laughs> who had a bigger TV than I had circa 1990. This is exactly what kind of place this looks like. Even the comfy chair, right? Well, everything else looks like it's circa 1990. That comfy chair though, right? That looks like it's from 1973, and uh, which is appropriate for what would be in an apartment like this, right? Is an old comfy chair that you got from uh, you know your parents or, or or somebody else, maybe even just the curb at some point, right? Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. I love that lamp. Uh, I have a lot of nostalgia for those types of of lamps as well, even though. I don't actually have nostalgia for the type of lighting they bestowed. I have nostalgia <laughs> no. for that type of lamp. This was a perfect selection. So, Glenn, 
I'm going to take a guess that either your favorite panel is either when Orpheus shows up and we have the wonderful palace of dream as if it's a Greek temple, or it's more likely when Orpheus enters the underworld. Am I right on either of those fronts? Which was your favorite panel? Yeah, you're you're correct on both fronts in the sense that uh, that was what it was narrowed down to. And I did a lot of hemming and hawing, maybe even a lot of soul searching to select a favorite. <laughs> but uh, I went with the palace here. Uh, this is from chapter two. It's this uh, dreams palace. It's depicted here in just a really magnificent classical style. Maybe neoclassical is probably the better uh, term to put there. It looks like it is a jumble of temples and sculptures just going up and up like they've been built onto the slope of a hill. We see many of the ancient Greek deities depicted in the sculptures. And so aside from this just being a gorgeous image and also looking like a pretty exciting place to explore, it gave me a lot of joy with a magnifying glass inspecting each of these sculptures <laughs> that I would do. I did not to bust out the magnifying glass to uh, look at the writing on the cover, but to look at the, the sculptures, the statues here, I absolutely did. It was a lot of fun to do that. Um, I'll also just say, since, you know, we kind of thinking about all of the panels, all of the depictions of death's apartment that, you know, even, getting into the interior of this palace as we see Dream and Orpheus having their conversation where we get this, I don't know, Byronic wind, I guess we can call it. Uh, All of that was really magnificent to me as well. So yeah, this is a place I would like to go spend some time, though ideally Dream is not there while I am. Yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful piece of art. It also lets us see the three um, gatekeepers, the guardians, um, which it's always fun to see them uh, and how much they change slash don't change over time. Um, and I like that they're adding quite a bit of color to the otherwise pretty monotone, um, but yet vivid in sculpture work that is done elsewhere. But yeah, I really, I really like it. It's a great panel. And uh, it was definitely on my shortlist as well. Yeah, I think probably when we do our ultimate series ending wrap-up episode, when we're all the way done with the Sandman, that we might want to do a, a little segment where we pick our favorite rendition of Dream's Palace. Uh, but I think <laughs> probably so far, this is the top of my list. There might be some recency bias there, but uh, I think this was is the, the number one candidate for me for that so far. Orpheus is a tale, Glenn, that uh, obviously has been told again and again, um, the tale of, of Orpheus and uh, Eurydice. Lots of music, lots of books, tellings, retellings. I think it's good for us to to talk about um, some particular ones that we might recommend to the audience. So are there any items particularly that you think uh, uh, listeners should keep in mind if they want to uh, revisit this tale? Absolutely. Yeah, I've got some musical recommendations, but I'll start with a a reading recommendation first. And uh, there are not actually very many versions of this story uh, from the ancient world that we get in full. We have some snippets in ancient Greek, but for the most part, the full versions of these uh, of this story uh, from the ancient world exist in Latin. These are the versions by uh, Virgil and by Ovid. My recommendation is for the one by Ovid, which is uh, found in his uh, epic poem called The Metamorphoses, which, as the title suggests, is about changes or about transformations. It is, in fact, really a collection of short stories 
uh, each one being about some kind of supernatural or, or numinous transformation. Uh, the Orpheus part comes in book 10, but really the whole book is worth reading. Uh, probably something I should have said maybe at the very top of the first episode on this issue is that, of course, I have professional training in Latin. It's my research language as a historian, although I don't work that job anymore. Uh, but my first experience of Latin poetry, learning the language as an undergrad, was with the Metamorphoses. And uh, I have just been in love with this book and also everything that Ovid wrote ever since. And I think a big part of the joy of reading the Song of Orpheus here is thinking about how Gaiman is, is playing with what's going on there with the classical literature. And in fact, the middle time of the three times that I have worked my way through the Sandman was right after completing that Latin poetry course because this is what I wanted to do. And so I spent that summer rereading the Sandman inspired by having read Ovid in class. I mainly had music to talk about. Um, so why don't I talk about some music suggestions? And then I know you've got other music suggestions too, Glenn. So um, I first of all feel it's important to call out the recent Broadway hit, uh, Hadestown. Um, I think that there's some things to not like as much about Hadestown, but I also think there's some big standout performances. Um, and all in all, it's a pretty enjoyable performance. Um, I particularly though want to call out uh, fellow University of Wisconsin graduate, uh, fellow Bucky Badger fan, uh, Andre DeShields, who uh, won a Tony for his performance in it, uh, playing Hermes. Uh, he does an excellent job, and he essentially kicks off and excel and also ends the show. If you listen to the original cast recording of that, I highly recommend it. Also, uh, recently, uh, there's been some other wonderful little touches of Orpheus appearing other places. Uh, in the Hades video game, uh, which a lot of people are big fans of, um, you're wandering around Hades, and among people you run into are Orpheus, and the Lament of Orpheus uh, is a wonderful little song where you get to hear him sing. Uh, this soundtrack I did not realize um, until recently uh, is written um, by Darren Korb. Darren Korb did the Bastion soundtrack. And, uh, I do have to say, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before, Glenn, the Bastion soundtrack, uh, is unrelated to Orpheus, but still, uh, one of my favorite things to put on when you want instrumental stuff, uh, but have to be productive while you do it. It's a wonderful soundtrack and it really shows how video game soundtracks, um, can be elevated above where traditionally they were in the past when you were limited a little bit more by size. However, all that being said, when I think about Orpheus, um, a lot of what I've been listening to as I was reading and prepping for this was a number of the operatic uh, versions and retellings of the tale, and particularly the one by, uh, by Gluck, uh, the Orpheo Ed, uh, your, your DC, uh, really was uh, a wonderful revisit. Um, there's a number of versions of it that are available, uh, and I highly recommend uh, listening to some Gluck. I also stumbled on a number of wonderful piano adapt adaptations of just the melody for piano and a lot of great performances of that that you can find on YouTube as well as uh, in recordings elsewhere by a lot of great pianists. So um, uh, I kind of went to Gluck. But where did you go with music and the journey you went through with it when you were prepping for this and thinking about Orpheus. 
Yeah, the Gluck was uh, top of my list as well. This is uh, an opera from 1762. As you said, there's a bazillion recordings and there are many productions that you can also watch uh, via streaming or you can get them on a a disc of some kind if that's your preference and probably find uh, snippets as well on YouTube. Uh, Yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant piece. I have never seen it live, though there was a period in my life when I went to a lot of opera, uh, but I have seen performances of it and it's, uh, I think, really fun to watch on the stage as well. This was something that I listened to while reading Sandman when we were teenagers all the time. So there's a a, a nostalgia element there for me as well. But something that is uh, new to me because it is new to the world is from composer Missy Mazzoli. It's a work called Orpheus Undone. Uh, This is really an orchestral adaptation of a score that she wrote for a ballet. The ballet was called Orpheus Alive. That was performed in 2016. And right now there is no recording of that available, a recording of the music, but also I don't think any recording of the actual stage performance either, though I'm eager for either or, or both of those things. At any rate, Orpheus Undone, which was premiered in 2020, is now available in a recording that was released literally just a few months ago as starting to prep for this episode. And this piece here really zooms in on the moment when Eurydice is sucked back into the underworld. And so it is a 15-minute piece that you you can put on while you admire the panel where Orpheus is on his knees shouting no. And I will say that the music is absolutely perfect for that moment. Uh, So I highly recommend that. I am, I will say, excited to get a chance to actually see the ballet or listen to the entire score for the ballet at some point, because this is one of the pieces I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about more contemporary artists wanting to think about the experience of Eurydice or to flip this story around in some way. This ballet uh, flips the roles of Orpheus and Eurydice. So even though I really said this is the moment when Eurydice is sucked back, I think it's really the when Orpheus is sucked back. So that's a performance that I would love to see because I think flipping those roles and zooming in on Eurydice uh, in some of the ways that Gaiman did here as well is uh, a great way to to think about this very old, very moving, very powerful story again. Well, I think now that we have left you with some recommendations for further media to go uh, explore and to perhaps uh, highlight or compliment your enjoyment of this issue, we're going to close this episode out. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And please, if possible, join us over on Patreon, um, where you'll be able to listen to us discuss A Walking Tour of the Shambles by Neil Gaiman and Gene Wolfe. This is the part of the show where I need to let listeners know what is next, because this is as far as we are going in Fables and Reflections at this point, because we are covering the Sandman in issue order, not the order of the volumes. And so what we actually are going to do first is uh, have a little interlude, a little break from the Sandman to cover some other things. This is going to include Gaiman's just absolute masterpiece short story, Troll Bridge, which I know is one of your favorites, Brent, and we can thank our Patreon supporters for voting for that. Uh, We are, as we teased earlier in this episode, also going to be covering the Chronicles of Narnia, so that then we can also cover Neil Gaiman's short story, The Problem of Susan. This is something that has been on our list for a long time, and I'm really excited to get to it. But before we do any of those things, we're going to be talking about 
some music. We're going to be talking about Neil Gaiman's new album called Signs for Life. This is an album that he did with a string quartet. It is, uh, at least as we are recording this, it is quite fresh. By the time that's airing, it will be less fresh. But uh, uh, this is us really uh, trying to jump on something that is uh, hot off the press, something I'm very, very excited about. And then we will get back to the Sandman in July with the first part of A Game of You. And until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>